one. And are recording for your second time on here, Dr. Kevin Barrett. And I was on your show, False Flag uh, Weekly, which uh, False Flag News Weekly, uh, Weekly News. I'm butchering it, which I thought false was News Weekly Flag. I, flag, flag, false Newsweek. It's I'm butchering it. I had a blast doing that. I think that it's it's a pretty badass idea for a show. Just what is actually going on and sort through the the top news stories. But just so as to stop me meandering like an idiot, Doctor Barrett, please introduce yourself. Hey, I'm gonna be back with you, Tommy. Yeah, yeah. I've been I've been doing False Flag Weekly News since like 2014, 2015, oh, wow. something like that. Uh, started with Jim Fetzer. And then moved on to Tony Hall. Uh, both of them are retired professors. Although Tony wasn't retired when he started. He got chased out of the university, probably mainly because he probably. was on my show. Probably. <laughs> he probably. still thinks that to this day, and he's probably not wrong. Uh, and he, he didn't actually get chased out. They tried. There was a witch hunt that went on and on and on. But they he stopped teaching. And he ended up fighting him to a draw and retired with full pension, which is more than I have. So... But anyway, yeah, so that False Flag Weekly News has been destroying people's careers since 2014. So uh, hopefully it won't d- destroy yours. It can't. It can't destroy mine. Mine. You can't. You cannot destroy that which is destroyed. So you, know, <laughs> you, you can. What's that Buddhist quote? It's like only by exposing ourselves to annihilation again and again can we reveal that which is indestructible. I've been censored and canceled by so many platforms. I've just accepted that I am in like my purest form now. Exactly. Yeah. Same here. There's nothing left they can do to us. There is nothing left. You have boiled me down to a conspiracy, bigoted, hateful, whatever you want to call me. There is nothing left to attack. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny how how, how they keep, you know, they they don't want you to hate anybody, but then they destroy your career. It's Kanye West had an experience (laughs) of that. (laughs) Yeah. We don't want you to hate anyone, but you white man, you are straight white man. Um. I guess kind of on the theme of a uh, of false flag, and not to not to rob you of your show, but what it what what do you think's the real story if we're gonna go along with this? What do you think's the real story behind uh, McCarthy getting the Speaker of the House? And full disclosure, I know very little about it, and I am very ignorant about it. But how how do they hold out for so many votes, and then seemingly it happens at like one in the morning or some shit? You know, uh, you probably I'm probably. 10 times more ignorant oh, than God. you on this. Oh, God. So, yeah, I'm probably the wrong guy to ask. Uh, yeah, as far as I can tell, is it's just procedural, you, the usual procedural nonsense. And I guess these bodies like the House of Representatives have traditions as well as official procedures. So according to the official procedure, they have to get this number of votes to confirm this guy as a speaker. But according to their traditions, they've never had any problem converting somebody to a speaker before. So this is outrageous that this group is is breaking the tradition of the House. The tradition is that you always pretty quickly settle on a speaker. And by not doing that, these darn right-wing extremist Republicans who are holding out are uh, doing sort of what Trump did. You know, like Trump didn't act presidential. He, he was disruptive. He came in there and did these things that violated all sort of pre- sorts of precedents, saying things that no previous president would ever have said, you know, some of them shockingly truthful and other them, others shockingly false. So, so that's the, I think, kind of why it's such a big tempest in a proverbial teapot is that it's offended all those people who are really worried that the American political system is getting shaky and creaky and maybe about to fall apart. 
and they know that it runs not only on legal procedures spelled out in very precise legal language, or sometimes just gobbledygook, but also it runs on traditions. And people traditionally just sort of did this, like people traditionally always just accepted whatever the result of the election was, even if they knew that it was probably bogus, right? You know, Nixon knew that Kennedy had stolen his presidency uh, due to dead people voting in Chicago mm -hmm. and non-existent people voting in Texas. But did Nixon complain? Oh, no, not even Nixon. That sore loser, that egotist, that criminal, even, not even Nixon would complain and point out the probably, you know, verifiable fact that he had his presidency stolen by a crooked election. So the tradition is you never do that. But then, of course, Trump, uh, when he maybe has an election stolen, it's a lot less obvious than it was in 1960 or 19 or, or 2004. Uh, Trump complains. He breaks the tradition. And so these people are worried that the you know their actors mainly the trump right is coming into politics and behaving disruptively not accepting all of these kinds of traditions uh and and acting the way that people have always acted in you know at these levels and so on and, and i think that the, you know, the same mainstream crowd is afraid of the people who don't believe what they say anymore and are doing you know basically you know buying into conspiracy theories that you're never supposed to talk about and back when the media dominated everything people mostly didn't talk about them but now that we have the internet people do so things are changing in this disruptive way and there are more people who are not sort of just mindlessly going along with the past modes of behavior and i think that's kind of what happened here we had these you know this this particular block that didn't like mccarthy that went and did something that really hadn't been done before and really disrupted the process of choosing a speaker. And so that really was the story as far as the details of what did these people hold out for? And you know, the, the one interesting thing they held out for was the COVID origins uh, mm. investigation. We need that. The problem is these people, they're all trying to blame China. And of course that was China was the whole COVID was set up to blame China by the by the US, which is, you know, it was a bio attack on China. So these people wanted to, quote unquote, investigate it, but their whole approach is to blame the victim. You know, just like it's like blaming the Muslims for 9-11, which was done by the enemies of Muslims. And this uh, COVID was done by the enemies of the Chinese. And they put that lab in, in Wuhan just so mm -hmm. they could blame China. Right. So the, to me, the whole thing is kind of a circus. And the people involved are either ignorant or, you know, deluded or just saying whatever works for their careers. Um and so on, and, and not really running the show anyway. Congress doesn't have much of a say really in what goes on. The permanent deep state does. And and so I don't get too excited about these mm -hmm. theatrical things. You know, just I, I, what happens in the House of Representatives, sort of like what happens at Windsor Castle in, in the UK. You know, it's all pomp and circumstance. And, you know, the British people get all excited about the king and the queen. And we get all excited about the House of Representatives. But in both cases, the deep state is really running everything. Yeah. You know, it's not the, the, king, the queen or the king now is not running anything in the UK. And Congress isn't running anything. anything. Even the president isn't really running much in the U.S. That's kind of the feeling I've been getting, and I was hoping I maybe wouldn't get this this jaded for like another twenty years or so. But it appears <laughs> I'm. It appears just in three short years, this podcast has brought me from bright eyed to just like oh, it's all so just Chris Hedges, Chris Hedgian Lee, just oh, no. like oh, it's all it's, and I'm trying not to, but. And that doesn't mean you can't still say optimistic in your immediate life. You can still do things around you to make life better. And you can just still enjoy life for the fuck of it. But I do kind of 
it is kind of funny seeing these not only the elections but electing the speaker of the house all the while we're awarding like a black rock like a trillion dollar reconstruction program of ukraine and you're like once you start to look at it more you're like that is that is the beast in the background the deep state the military industrial complex the banking whatever you want to call it you can almost see it like a titan on the horizon and it's kind of like can't quite tell if it's a mountain but it is moving and then you see this like brightly colored parade in the foreground and it's like elections and democrats and republicans and those libtards and conservatards and then it's just like boeing awarded 30 billion dollar contract another 100 billion dollars of high mars and you're like that's the that's the monster and yeah. there's really nowhere to go with that yeah well um yeah i i think that all systems can continue to function because the people put up with them and you know chomsky talks about manufacturing consent mm -hmm. and then philip zelico was the self-professed expert in the creation and maintenance of public myths and those public myths are these widely shared beliefs that may or may not be true but they sort of provide the background and the context for the way people understand the political reality that they're living in. And so as people lose faith in these public myths, and it, it sort of throws a monkey wrench in the consent manufacturing machine. So I'm not like so completely cynical that I think there's no hope whatsoever. Uh, on the contrary, I do think that it's gotten pretty hard for the bad guys to wage war, for example. I think it may be in the past it's been easier for someone to do wage war and doing what was it Goring said that you just tell people that they're being attacked okay. and they'll rally behind you. The now, yeah, yeah, it's it's a little harder. Uh, no, it's still they're they're getting away with it. They're getting away with lying about Ukraine and you know lying about China and, and giving the American people a totally false picture of what's how the world really works and how their own country really works. But a lot of people are starting to wake up to it, or at least becoming sort of half awake. And the consensus of, around the public myths is getting shakier all the time. So I'm, I might even live long enough to really see it change radically. You know, things get weaker and weaker and weaker. At some point, they collapse and things start happening really fast. And I don't know how precisely that would ever, you know, I don't know what it's going to look like. But I do get the sense that it's, it's likely that that could happen, as opposed to the consent manufacturers shoring up their machine enough that they can kind of keep keep on muddling through forever, or at least through the rest of my lifetime, another couple of decades, maybe, inshallah. Uh, so yeah, as far as the the way it works, right, I'm, I'm totally cynical about, you know, I, I have no illusion. I really kind of lost most of my illusions back when I was in high school and figured out that the JFK assassination was a, a coup d'etat by some really nasty people. And so I've lived most of my adult life with that kind of knowledge, and I don't have that many illusions left to lose. Um, but it's I am I still keep getting shocked a little bit by each of these total excesses, like you know, 9 11 was a false flag that blew up the towers and said they just fell down from fires. I mean, that's pretty extreme. And you know, uh, this you know, Jeffrey Epstein thing comes out in the open, that's kind of extreme. And, and then he just, oh, he just suicided himself. Okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. Nobody believes it. So, th I mean, things are seemingly getting a little more extreme and crazy all the time. And you know, you just kind of wonder what'll be next and you know, when will people really stop putting up with it i suspect that would probably start to happen when they became materially <laughs> deprived 
you know, sure. When you, you fell apart, yeah. when you run out of the the bread and circus, yeah. And it's, um, but yeah, it's I was, was going to say I was seventeen when I read uh, CIA: A Legacy of Ashes by I think Tim Weiner, Weiner, mm-hmm. and that kind of that was like an early early red pill of like, mm-hmm. oh wait, hold on. Like, hold on a second. Learning about the business plot and like bringing it up in class, and the professor being like, not even professor, the high school teacher being like, what are you talking about? And like, the thing in 1933 where a bunch of wealthy like magnets like approached a general to get 500,000 troops to throw out FDR. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's provable US history. There was the, the committee on anti American activity or whatever discussed it and said it was a probable conspiracy. The DuPont family. The Remington family. All right. Guess we're just all right. But you have to wonder then the manufacturing consent, the the public myth machine. There is just kind of looking at it entirely removed. Let's say we were on that side. Let's say we were the evil demons running the show. It might not even be that you have to perpetuate old myths so much as you could maybe pull a fast one and introduce a new one. Like it seems like as you know, JFK thirty-seven years later, thirty-eight years later, you get nine eleven, right? And then it's seven years after nine eleven, you get the financial crisis, and then twelve years after that, you get COVID. So there is a tactic of just replacing the old with a new one. That because right, it takes time. It takes years and decades to examine these things for there to be real deep dives of books and and articles written about them and you can start to piece it together on your own and then you have your own uh sort of perspective right get some time between you and the event and examine it more it's but you can't really solve the whole thing when a new one is introduced right it sounds like the carl rove quote right when about the uh the people who believe in a discernible reality being the reality-based community and carl rove had scorn for them and said that you know you'll keep trying to find the truth using logic and evidence um and while you do that we'll be out there creating a new reality because we create our own reality we're an empire now and so we're always going to be a step ahead of you and uh as you judiciously try to make sense of things we'll be way out ahead of you you know creating reality and and uh so he, he basically laid that out there that was I think, that was an interview with a new yorker i think he did not long after 9-11 carl rove said that well it, i think they didn't attribute it to rove but it sure. was it was unofficially attributed to rove there is something about the closer you get to solving a rubik's cube just throwing out a new rubik's cube right and it's you're never really going to get ahead of it because they can just manufacture just like they can print money and devalue your own worth you can just throw out a new Rubik's cube that completely up it, and all the while, you know, what should be called investigative journalism into government doings, if they've successfully branded as conspiracy theory, like the very looking into it has been has been deemed fringe, which is just, I mean, from purely a tactical standpoint, it's just brilliant. I mean, you got to respect your enemy; they're, they're great at it, but you got to wonder then, as these, like you said earlier, these sort of these myths, these lies, like even Nixon knew, uh, yeah, all those like empty or extra ballots showed up for a Kennedy in Chicago in the wee hours. But even he didn't bring it up as you don't want, they didn't want to shake the apple cart too much. Do you think that 
it's not even necessarily that more and more people are starting to seep through it so much as it's that, and they might not be mutually exclusive, but when people do see through it through the advent of social media, now they know they're not alone, right? You, you bring up, if it's 1970 and you bring up the JFK assassination, no one in your, maybe if you have 10 friends, maybe no one else is interested in it and you think I'm a kook, right? But all of a sudden you start going on forums and subreddits and whatever and Twitter threads and you realize that other people are putting, you know, they're piecing together the the same uh, the same odd facts you are. So is it that the same number of people or same percentage of people are seeing through it now, but there's an ability for them to coalesce? Do you think there's any, not, not that you have the answer, but... Yeah, I think that's true. And I think also once they start coalescing, then a larger number joins them. More people start to see through it. You know, once you know that there are people out there who think something, then you're more likely to look into it yourself. Uh, so yeah, I think the internet has done that. And I know people who hate conspiracy theories, like one of my own siblings, who uh, grumble about how the internet has made it possible for you know these people to get together and and suddenly you can't ignore them anymore because you know they 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 all are talking to each other and now you know then they're visible on social media you know you can't avoid them anymore. It used to be that it was a rare experience to run into a conspiracy theorist. You know you might just go to a bar or something and then hear somebody talking at the next table or the next bar stool and wow I heard a conspiracy theorist and that might happen like you know once every ten years. But uh, now you know the people go on social media and everybody's got a a friend, a brother, an uncle, uh, whatever, who's interested in this kind of stuff. And so they, uh, uh, you know, some some of them don't like it, like my sibling. But I, uh, yeah, I think that has actually uh, intensified the sort of the red-pilled uh, movement. And it is, I mean, you know, there's always been that kind of skepticism around. I remember when I was young and uh, you know, the tail end of the Vietnam era, uh, 70s, you know, which is when the 60s came to Wisconsin, I was more or less, you know, kind of countercultural by then, being jaded by the JFK assassination and the Vietnam War. And there were a lot of people who were saying these, you know, like taking heretical perspectives on things and sometimes really sharply heretical ones. You know, Paul Krasner was a, he was kind of an influence on me along with Abby Hoffman. Paul Krasner is a satirist who, you know, he he would do all kinds of wonderfully wicked satires and parodies of things from a, a really intense kind of hippie peace and countercultural perspective. And uh, his, his paper was called The Realist. He was well known for his uh, ostensible news report detailing how Lyndon Johnson uh, fornicated with Kennedy's bullet wound on the plane on the Air Force One back from Dallas to Bethesda, Maryland. And the thing about that satire, which is just brutal, ugly, hideous, and disgusting, as well Jeez. as very sickly funny, uh, the trouble with it is it's almost true. I mean, it's probably. like it's it's probably almost not that true. Far. Yeah. Probably because not. they, yeah, I mean, they, they actually the the coup plotters did in fact surgically mutilate Kennedy's wounds, including his head wound, in order to make it look possible that he'd been shot from the uh, the back, when in fact he has had his brains were blown out from the front. So, the, you know, this horrific nature of the reality uh, and with Johnson, like laughing on Air Force One, there's a picture of him like like laughing and cheering. You know, he's, he's, he's celebrating and he got that, you know, night before he told his mis mistress 
that uh, oh, those Kennedy brothers aren't going to never have get to deal with them again. Yeah, yeah. So 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 Krasner's satire, as extreme and hideous as it as it was, was actually right on the money in terms of the the you know the, the symbolic truth of what happened. Uh, and so there were a lot of people like that back then, and there was this you know, on the left like Krasner, and then on the right there have been you know people the John Birch contingent and other folks who have been very suspicious of all sorts of things on the right. So there, there's been, it's been around for a while, but I think it's a lot more visible and more prevalent and people are more informed, not necessarily better informed, but certainly more informed. Uh, so, so it's more of a thing now, you know, being red pilled is a thing uh, probably more than ever. And uh, I guess that's good. <laughs> that, is, dude, that is the darkest imagery. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. Well, Paul Krasner, he boy, did he ever he get he did he get pushback from the mainstream? I'm on that. sure he did. Yeah. He'd probably get pushback today, let alone yeah, he's, yeah. He's he's probably lucky they didn't Woo. whack him. <laughs> Woo. But I mean, just to play devil's advocate. LBJ was known for taking out his uh, genitals on Air Force One. Well, exactly. Yeah, that, I mean that satire just got captured it's, all of these pieces of reality and put them together. It's not that far apart. <laughs> slight dude. slight exaggeration, but not much. Not that much man i mean he had his chair at the conference table in air force one elevated because he wanted to feel like a king he used to grab flight attendant's hands and put it on his exposed genitals he would apparently he was very well endowed and he would say here's jumbo hey man lbj not a good guy yeah um, he, he actually had he, he was traveling in his limousine with some journalists once and he uh had the driver pull over and then he just stepped out and defecated in front of them uh and, well, he used to, that used to be his thing, though, was right. He'd always shit in front of journalists. Yeah, yeah I guess. Well, I, I just heard about it. Oh, in the White once. House. Apparently, it was oh, just, in the White House, too. Apparently, right? that was business as usual. Is mm -hmm. It was almost like a power projection thing. You come in and, you know, there's a gentlemanly agreement that they wouldn't say how they got their interview with LBJ. But he would just sit there and just make the most grotesque noises on the toilet as you interviewed him. Like, what a sick individual. He, he's gross. There's something about yeah. LBJ that sticks out to me above the rest that I just. Yeah. Don't... Yeah. Unfortunately, that kind of psychopathy is not all that exceptional in no. power because the, no. the, these those type of people are the ones that really want power. They rise. Yeah. Well, they're the ones that I mean, Truman, there was actually a book uh, my parents used to have. I think it was my grandpa's. It was this. I don't know, I'll have to find the name of it. So it's, it's, you know, it's maybe like a two day read, but it was just uh, presidents and Air Force One. And it was a little, uh, it's like a coffee table book, but just these interesting factoids from from FDR and Truman, who with them, it wasn't even called Air Force One, up through, I think it was written when Obama was in office. It might So it might have been up through Clinton, but it's just little factoids about all of them. Some of them are fascinating. You kind of see who they are because they would describe that uh, they felt more at home in Air Force One than they did the White House because the White House still felt very, according to the presidents, the White House still felt very uh, performative, right? Versus Air Force One, it was, you really could have a limited number of people. You could have phones confiscated. You could kind of be yourself for better or worse. And uh, I guess Clinton used to stay up playing like poker and talking geopolitics um, and but Truman, Truman would have he, his plane was called the Sacred Cow, and he'd have it he'd have it flown over the states of like the senators he hated, and he'd have this septic tank flushed at like twenty thousand feet, just spray it out onto the town. Yeah, between that and, and the stories about Johnson, it kind of supports Sigmund Freud's idea about you know that anal sadistic quality of power seeking. 
that these people are basically two-year-olds who never got past their toilet training psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, LBJ would always love to have the time told to him. Uh, The time, the time that there's three, uh, the time in DC, the time where they were and the time at the place they were going. And so the, to the point where they came in and installed three clocks does. And those are kind of the pictures you can see now. And like, the presidential office on Air Force One is there's always like number of clocks, right? London, Tokyo, Beijing, whatever. And uh, that came from him. And even when they put the clocks in there, he'd still demand like secretaries come in and read them the time and shit. Uh, yeah, but I, it's, it's, so it's not that far. From, I don't know. I don't I don't think LBJ actually fornicated with the body of Kennedy, but it's not it's closer to reality than it is fiction. Yeah, is... yeah. So Crasher's publication was was well named, the realist. I mean, that's unfortunately yeah. realism face that... the sort of thing, and nobody wants to. Yeah. Do you think it almost kind of makes? Do you think it almost kind of makes like current reality a little more acceptable? It doesn't make it any better, but you know, I I I think that there is. I think there's fraud in every election. In my a humble opinion, and obviously I could be incorrect. I, I do think the 2020 election was fraudulent, but then there's also, oh, you know, I was only 10 when it happened, but I have to look back and be like, well, so is the Bush Gore one. And then you look back even more and it's like, well, so is Kennedy Nixon. And it doesn't make it better, but it almost makes it a little more palpable of like, yeah, this happened before. Like what, it's almost like grow up. Like, what do you think is happening? Yeah. It's the psychopaths and deep state of, and military intelligence. Like, yeah, of course they're all backstabbing demons. Like, mm-hmm. like grow up. Like, what did you and then think? There, then there are the, the acts of treason that decided presidential elections. Nixon uh, won against Humphrey in 68 because he had his people torpedo a peace plan. Yeah. Uh, and then in the, something <laughs> similar happened with Reagan Bush, uh, the Iran Contra thing was all based on that Bush and his friends, William Casey and so on, mm-hmm. flew to Spain and other places to meet with the representatives of the Iranian government, which was uh, in charge of the students who were holding hostages in the former U.S. En- embassy, the den of espionage, they called it. And those hostages, that was the issue for the 1980 election. And President uh, Carter, mm-hmm. Carter. Was, yeah, Carter was hated because that he couldn't do anything about these hostages. And he finally, he finally sent a rescue mission that that failed, failed abysmally. Yeah. And so anyway, the, the uh, Bush, uh, or rather the Reagan-Bush team, actually made an agreement with the Iranian leadership that the hostages would be released uh, once Reagan was in office. And in return for that, they would get some spare parts and stuff mm-hmm. they needed uh, for their, their war you know, problems with Iraq and so on and so forth. So that whole thing ended up throwing the election to reagan and indeed those hostages were released just minutes after reagan was sworn in yeah and it has that effect of propaganda and i fell for it when i was a kid and i I remember reading it in whatever middle school or something and you're like well that's what happens when a real man comes in office and then you grow up and you're like hold the fuck on you're like excuse my french but you're like what really happened here like it's not they didn't just well, it's sort of revelation of the method right to, to actually cool. have those hostages released just minutes after reagan was sworn into office is yeah. uh i mean they they, they could oh, have like, asked to, to delay it a few days just, or whatever yeah. wait three and a half weeks some random time yeah yeah it is so i don't know in a it's almost 
it's like when you get older and you realize your parents are just people and it doesn't, I have wonderful parents. I, I truly believe I have the best parents of anyone that's lived. I, 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 I'd say that with a lie detector, but when you get older and you start to like my parents, I'm 32 now. That's how old my parents were when they had me. I'm, I don't have any pets. I don't, I'm not in a relationship. I'm my own. I do a podcast and I'm still dealing with my day-to-day anxieties and bills. And I couldn't imagine having a child, let alone a third by 32. And you look back and you realize that imperfections are, they're humans. That's it there. And there's another great quote, uh, you know, be kind to your parents. They weren't always your parents for most of their life. They weren't. And it allows you to see them more in a human space. And now none of this necessarily applies. I'm not trying to give you, this is maybe a terrible example, actually. I'm not trying to give humanity to the psychopaths. This is actually a horrible example, but let's go with it anyway. I've already dug myself in a hole. There's something about reading about coup attempts and intelligence corruption and back deals and treason and stolen elections and it's not that it's not all evil. It's just that it didn't start five years ago. That we've been living in a corrupt, hopelessly treasonous society for like well over a century. And that makes it a little less scary, if that makes sense. I don't know if that makes I don't know if you're picking up what I'm putting down. Oh doesn't yeah. Make it any better? It doesn't make it any better yeah, that they better, 9-11 but... and kill JFK. I'm not saying it does, but it I guess it makes it a little less terrifying. A little less, not a whole lot. Uh, that maybe wasn't a great point. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna pawn this off on you now. Well, no, no, I think it's <laughs> right. A lot, a lot of times, you know, people think, oh, this is the worst of times. We're getting close to the, the apocalypse. Uh, things couldn't ever have possibly ever been this bad, but maybe they actually were. Uh, and you know, maybe there are some of these problems that go back, you know, to. Ultimately, I think when I wrote that essay, Twilight of the Psychopaths, that got a lot of circulation, it might might be the most read thing I've written, other than the uh, Quora answer about Morocco that got 4 million reads. But other than that, probably the, the Twilight of the Psychopaths is, is the thing that I wrote that got the most reads. And in that piece, I just took it back to the beginning of so-called civilization, that most likely the uh, people who organized the slave armies to go out and rob the peasants of their grain to produce the food to feed the the armies and the bandits, the bandit slave armies that would go out and rob more peasants. And then pretty soon you control the territory of all the peasants that you rob every year and you call it taxes. And, and that's really where civilization begins. So the bandit chieftains that began that process really were probably psychopaths. That is, you know, they were people that broke out of the conventional sort of uh, the the natural human uh, tendencies to have sort of emotional give and take with other human beings in such a way that you you don't just treat them as objects and totally screw them over. Uh, so these people who were born with that ability to basically just screw people over and squash human beings like they squash flies, these kinds of psychopaths, uh, gravitated to the power positions and created what we think of as civilization. So this problem that we face when we look at these psychopaths in power like Lyndon Johnson and all of the others is something that probably to some extent at least goes back to the very beginning of human civilization. And then likewise, 
you know, we've probably been lying about it the whole time too. You know, Rene Girard said that civilization or all human cultures rather are based on a, a murder and a lie. And of course he had a slightly different take around the ubiquity of human sacrifice, but the general tendency to try to dress things up in such a way that, you know, we don't have to face the most awful realities is probably probably goes right back to the beginning of, of history. And then even when we go into prehistory, before the psychopaths took over and created civilization, there were some probably unpleasant things too. Although whether they may have been, there may have been a little bit less structural unpleasantness, but I think there was still probably that human sacrifice motif holding the, the tribe together that Girard talks about. You know, Herman Melville wrote a book called Taipei that describes, uh, it's autobiographical, uh, how Melville himself ended up uh, jumping ship on a South Sea island to get away from the harsh, you know, discipline of civilization, right? The ship's captain sort of, you know, cracking the whip and mistreating the sailors. And so he and his friend jumped ship on this island. And then the, the book describes, and I'm not sure if it's absolutely 100% nonfiction, it's, it's a novel, so it's probably dressed up a little bit. But he, uh, they choose this island where much of the island on the other side of the mountains is inhabited by the Taipei tribe, which is a notorious cannibal tribe. Yeah, and everybody's terrorized of them. But he, they know that if they jump ship there, then they won't be followed and tracked down and punished. So they jump ship there, they go out into the wilderness, cross the mountains, and Melville, or the, the protagonist, ends up in the land of the Taipei tribe, and they capture him. He's been captured by cannibals. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Well, not so much. Turns out these cannibals are having a better life, much better life than the civilized people ever had. But, you know, the, the protagonist who comes from New York, where everybody is sickly and uh, miserable and neurotic, and, and these people are having a great time. They're all, you know, 70-year-olds are climbing up the top of coconut palm trees, you know, really good physical shape. Nobody's sick. Uh, they're happy and having a good time, and the human relationships are really rich. And so he actually... Yeah, learned some of their language and their customs and is wow this is great it's like a paradise yeah but then uh at some point it becomes clear that they have this little game that they play with the neighboring tribe where they have a little warrior skirmish and maybe somebody gets killed and then gets eaten and it's it's a typical example of this uh cannibal practice of eating the heart of the war fallen warrior mm -hmm. to get his valor. powers yeah 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 so anyway, so that dark side of that culture suddenly appears, and then he decides he wants to get out of there, and they almost, they chase him down and almost catch him and eat him. I, I don't want to ruin the ending for you here, but, but anyway, the bottom line here is I, I think there's actually a, a lot of truth in that portrayal of what pre-civilization, like civilization is founded by psychopaths, but pre-civilization there's also it's that culture too, as as Girard talked about, is it's founded on a murder and a lie, uh, and that practice of sacrifice goes back to the practice of blaming somebody for your misfortunes, and then you know lynching them, and and then that becomes the roots of uh, pagan religion. So the the pre-civilized you know pagan humans were you know, probably you know they probably in many ways had lives that are better than ours today maybe not materially but in terms of their human relationships and their natural ease at living in their environment and with their fellow creatures 
but they uh, they were they weren't perfect by any means, and there was that that uh, issue of uh, that Girard draws our attention to. So anyway, so so bottom line here is we look at the horrors of today, as you said, and contextualize them historically. And there's been horrors all down the line. You know, James Joyce said, history is a nightmare from which I am trying to awaken. And yeah, I could see why he would say that. Yeah, I often think, because I have the luxury of thinking about it, right? I'm in my air, or not air conditioned right now, heated. I'm in my heated apartment, you know, I'm looking out. It's a beautiful day. I've got bottled water and a shower and a bed and a door that locks. And I get to do this for a living. I'm not, you know, working in some textile mill in the 1800s. But it does kind of seem again and again, you read about these and all sorts of novels and books about yeah, discovering some like indigenous population where they're either like trappers in Alaska or they're living in Pueblos in South America or some shit. And there seems to be a higher level of comfort. There seems to be deeper human relations. It seems that people do live longer, but there also seems to be, there is something in the struggle that almost you almost wonder if all day every day you're just fighting to stay alive you got to go hunt food you got to go find firewood you got to bring back water you almost don't have time to be concerned about congress or and I, that doesn't mean get distracted by bread and circus. I mean, you know, actually, I remember watching this show a couple of years ago about this couple that lives up in like the Arctic Circle of Alaska. They've got this tiny hut, probably smaller than this bedroom. And they're just beaming ear to ear. They have nothing. But they're they're hunting down, they're trapping, they're making their own blankets and they're finding firewood and they're getting ready for the winter. And it's, they just... And they asked him, what do you think about 9-11? I think he said, who is 9-11? They just, and you go, is that bad? Is that bad or is that peace? Is that how, is that how we're meant to be? Or is this a case of the grass being greener? Do I get to say this from the comfort of my apartment over an iMac talking to you? Like, I don't know, but that seems to be a recurring theme and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's me romanticizing it because I love creature comforts. I, I adore them, but I don't know. It's, I don't know. Ted, Ted Kaczynski wrote about this. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course he did. <laughs> I tried to get him on here. ADX Florence was not, they were not pleased with my emails. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I tried to get him on. I thought it would be funny to have Ted Kaczynski do a podcast like over zoom. I thought there'd be some like irony. That there. would be wonderful. I thought it'd be, but it'd just be kind of funny. Like we're also doing it over technology, and they weren't, they weren't happy. They, yeah, they were not happy about that. I wouldn't recommend emailing. Yeah, I've, I've interviewed David Scribina uh, several times, and he actually lectured his classes a few times too. He, he's, I think he stopped teaching now, but he, he was teaching at the University of Michigan, and so I, I got to lecture on nine eleven to his classes when he was teaching, and had him on my show a few times. He, he's the editor of Ted Kaczynski's works. You know, oh. Uh, other than the Unabomber Manifesto, of course, which yeah. he used so different low. extraordinary means to get published. Yeah, uh, but now yeah, David's been editing his books written from prison, and yeah, David kind of you know takes his critique of technology seriously. Now, David Scribina wrote Metaphysics of Technology. He looks at all of the greatest philosophers who've thought about technology, and he 
he thinks you know Kaczynski's analysis you know is right up you know it's, it deserves consideration when you're seriously thinking about that topic so yeah Kaczynski he was one of these people who as you say not only uh believed that people are happier when they're struggling so hard to survive that that's all they have time to do that's pretty much how he chose to live too he was you know working basically uh you know hunting and and uh, uh growing a little bit of his own food uh, on some not such great land and really uh describe there's one interview in one of those books that david scribina edited in which he describes what his days were like his you know, typical days when he was doing that and sounded really good I and mean, the interviewer was jealous like wow yeah he gets up at the crack of dawn he's kind of shivering and you know, goes out hunting and spends the day you know go crawling around in the mountains and the woods and finally manages to, to bag a rabbit and sort of thing um, so yeah I mean, I, I, but and then of course his downfall was maybe uh paying too much attention to politics to the point of getting involved mm-hmm. in a <laughs> kind of destructive way so yeah maybe uh Kaczynski would have been better off if he just kept uh fighting to survive rather than uh, killing people in order to publicize a manifesto about why we would all be happier if we were just fighting to survive yeah <laughs> Yeah, that does kind of seem to be his downfall is at the core of, I guess, the downfall of all things is trying to project your own beliefs and force your will upon others. Yeah, maybe he would have been happier just going full, what's the the book, Into the Wild, just abandoning it at all and like walking into the woods. Maybe he would have been happier than that. I don't know. It's. Yeah, I, I like to personally compromise a bit. Like I, I you know, <laughs> I like the life of reading books mainly. And sure. so the internet is sort of an extension of a library in a way, as well as a, a telephone communications channel. So yeah, I, I, I use, I kind of, I like it to some extent, although in an ideal world, I think I would be meeting people face to face and then writing on a manual typewriter and then reading physical books. I, in some ways I would be happier if almost, if there was no internet, but in, in ordinary life, I, I spend a fair amount of time uh like using you know cutting firewood and building uh gardens raised bed gardens and uh and you know greenhouse and do all this kind of stuff i have to do to on this property i'm on you know two and a half acres here in our our zawia in western wisconsin but outdoor stuff uh and other non-intellectual pursuits like you know playing basketball with my son and things like that uh kind of balance things off and i can get i can survive getting on the internet and talking about these horrible things like we're doing right now because that's not all i ever do yeah and then and then you're punk i i punctuate your piece with yeah talking about jfk getting his head blown off no i know i know what you're maybe that is the way maybe i am getting closer to that right because i you know i did an episode before this and i'm doing this one with you so I'll, i'll talk to people for two or three hours a day I try to listen to an odd hour of an audiobook a day. I don't get on social media. I post the podcast there. And every day after I post the podcast, I delete all the apps from my phone. I don't keep them on there. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think it's good for my me- I always find myself scrolling. So I just get rid of them and I download them every evening and I'll upload the podcast. Maybe I'm actually a maybe I am walking down the right path. Maybe I just need to push it a little further, not be in a city. Maybe I just need to go up and be in the woods and I can dip my toes into society and talk to people, hang out with you for an hour and then silence it all. 
I don't know. Maybe there's a... I'm just thinking out loud now. Maybe there's a hybrid piece in that. Yeah. It's... <laughs> I've, I've been doing this thing, you know, being outside of the city now sure. for, for quite some time. And another approach, an alternative approach, would be rather than trying to sort of get back to the the contact with the land and growing your own food in the wilderness and the woods and all that sort of stuff uh, to get back into a more intense kind of human community. And I've experienced more intense human relations and richer community life in places like Mexico, Guatemala, and especially Morocco. Uh, and I'm actually considering the possibility of moving to Morocco and that's one of the big attractions is that there still is a much more uh, vibrant and kind of organic uh, community life in Morocco, where mm -hmm. you know, people spend a lot of time talking to each other and the extended families hang out a lot and talk and their friends and relations drop by and they all know what and care what they're all each other's are doing. And so there's a lot of that face to face interaction. I mean, yeah, they have TVs and they have Internet, of course. But there's here in the U.S. It sometimes feel like it's like there isn't that much, and especially for us. Like I, I don't go to bars much anymore, except you know to be the token Muslim watching the Green Bay Packers once in a while. <laughs> Speaking of which, they had a terrible game last night. Uh, I yeah. Other than you know these these kind of you know, very rare occasions, I end up sort of actually having some kind of social interaction with yeah. the people around me. But it's it's not like in Morocco where that's like kind of what you do mainly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's another way to do it is, you know, you, you could either go, flee from the suburban, you know, internet ghetto and, and go to the woods, or you could go to someplace where there's like a, a really intense Richer. community. Yeah, it's, that is funny, the, the, the token Muslim Green Bay Packers fan. Uh, but yeah, I think about, you know, a lot of my extended family kind of lives up in the, the woods in New England and not the woods. I mean, there's still a town nearby, but far enough away. And everyone's kind of one foot in, one foot out of society. But they're very rich communities. I mean, you can just, you know, like there's a different heat between turning on the heater and like sitting next to a fire. You know, it just feels, you're like, oh, this is, fire has that sort of primitive mesmerizing. It's almost a drug. You can almost, you, you almost feel like epigenetics back 10,000 generations of just watching the fire. There's something about, seeing the stars over a still lake you can feel it when you go up there and just the just the community interactions and me and my brother were kidding like seems like all they do is get into problems and get out of them like a snowmobile will get stuck or someone will have a flat tire or a tree will fall in someone's house and they all come together and fix it and the more i think about it like what else is there to do beat your head against the speaker of the house i think that is like life that is probably what the joys are is you come together as a community and we're going to figure it out. And someone's got a tow truck and someone's got a snow plow and someone's got a whatever. And maybe that's what it is. I mean, some people make their own like weed, honey. Some people make their own moonshine. Other people, you know, are experts in this, that, or the other thing. Yeah. Like what else is there to life? That's probably what the joy is, is being a tiny community that just sort of, overcomes challenges because if you really break it down like what are any of us doing all day every day just trying to get by and figure something out granted it's less it's less 
land base and more of like i gotta go to the supermarket and get whatever but in the grants like what else is there to do and i don't mean that in like a depressing way i just mean like what else is there to do like i mean you can only get so much money you can only buy so many cars like what does it matter like I don't know now. Now everybody can. Now I'm just using Doctor Barrett as my therapist, and <laughs> but I'll I'll have, to, I'll have to Venmo you for your services. But to, that's what I'm kind of thinking more and more is it is that community, and you can feel it when you go up there. It's like a fire. You you can actually feel it. There is something about instead of it being formal, we're all going to get together for the holidays. There is something about just people dropping by each other's houses at five p.m. on a Tuesday. They're just they're, maybe that maybe they get shit faced and hang out for twelve hours. Maybe they just talk for thirty minutes. But there is something very comforting about it. You don't. I feel like they're not yearning for more, and I can see it in myself where the absence of that warmth. I try to fill it in other areas. I need a bigger computer. I need a bigger TV. I need to get more subscribers. Those are little tiny dopamine band-aids that last for like a half hour. And then you're just stuck wanting more. Maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe I just need to move up there. Sounds like it. This that does sound like it. Yeah. No, I, I think I think the the rural areas are by and large better and, and the kind you're describing in particular would be more a, a more healthier environment than like suburbs and cities. Yeah. And there's a, there's a spiritual dimension too, where sure. that's another issue for me with Morocco because there, you know, there is that kind of consensus around the religion of Islam, and there's also the practice of Sufism, which is what I studied for my like PhD. Mystics, and, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of Islamic mysticism, and I have an affinity sort of for that interpretation of Islam, so that kind of feels good too. And, and that's another thing that's missing here in, in North America the uh, along with the community along with the contact with nature is the kind of uh, collective dimension of spirituality and for a lot of people spirituality period but there are of course plenty of people who are spiritually engaged one way or another but they often tend to be uh, kind of off on their own doing their own thing and it's very rare when it's part of a really intense community and when that does happen it's usually some crazy cult so, yeah yeah. So there's, there's something there's something kind of wrong with that picture. Like in, in Morocco, yeah, there's there's the the mosques everywhere around the city, and each neighborhood has one. And usually people would pray on Fridays at their neighborhood mosque. And on the night of power in Ramadan, they would walk around all night, you know, doing an all nighter. The way Americans go to bars and an all nighter, they go to mosques on an all nighter from every mosque, visit every mosque in the city and collect the baraka or blessing from each mosque. And uh, yeah, some of the people will be not really very religious at all. Some of them probably don't even pray, except maybe on Eid. And some of the people will be, you know, good, pious people that pray pretty much five times a day, but not so much on time. And there'll be some really intense people that like wake up at dawn to get it, pray the first possible time. And there'll be some Sufis who, you know, every day they sit and chant and they go into an altered state of consciousness as they mm -hmm. chant uh, uh, and and then they'll sometimes get together and have these group chanting mysticism sessions called vicars. Um, so there's that that religious and spiritual dimension of group life that has gone missing, I think, in the West. I've been reading about 
uh, a Russian version of this. There's a book called Everyday Saints by Tikhon, who's Putin's spiritual advisor. It's a really good book. And it gives you a sense of how at least some people in Russia are kind of finding their way, way back to their Russian Orthodox Christian tradition, which is very much you know, rooted in their particular society in the same way that the Islam I was describing is rooted in Morocco. And, and all of this, of course, is very different from what we mostly experience here. Do you think you're going to move to Morocco? Well, it's pretty likely, yeah, just because, mainly because my wife is is very, very interested in that, in doing that. And uh, so I'm kind of like, yeah, I could see the cool things about being there, but it's kind of a lot of work to have to go. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I think eventually we'll probably end up there. Do you think any of what we're both describing is thinking the grass is greener? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, I also have that fear of like you go do well. I mean, maybe it's not a fear because well, it's always going to sound better than it is, right? I mean, I could have never imagined being my own boss and doing a podcast for a living, and I did them, and then I started to imagine it, and it's awesome. I love it, but it's certainly not as great as I thought it would be. But nothing is as great. Just period. No, no bowl of ice cream is ever going to be as good as you've built it up in your mind to be. So I think that's that's probably not a fair critique because everything's a little less shiny in real life. But maybe it would be better than this. I th I don't know. There is some fear, though. Of, do you almost want to keep something in your mind that's at a distance, some carrot that you think that life will be better? But if you go live it and it's not better, what happens when you run out of carrots in your mind? It's it's almost like in The Alchemist where the kid's talking to the old shop owner and they're all talking about, was it the Hajj? What's the pilgrimage to Mecca? Yeah, yeah, the Hajj. And he's talking about how he, he's always wanted to since he was a little kid and he's an older guy now and he talks about it and the young guy, whatever, 20, the main character, is working for him and he's like, well, I'm saving up to go do it. And uh, finally, the old guy says to him one day, he goes, I'm never actually going to go do it. He goes, I like to plan it out in my mind. And I think of how great it would be. But I'm scared of doing it because it's not going to be as great as I think it is. And then I'll have nothing else to dream towards. And kind of implies that, you know, that would either lead to suicide or depression or something. And I almost wonder, is like, should you always keep a carrot in your mind? What happens if it's not as great and then you run out of things to imagine? Or maybe that itself is a depressing mindset. Maybe you need to go after the carrot and stop thinking like that. Yeah, I, I think the, the best approach is to kind of let go of these kinds of concerns, mm. desires and fears and just um, be... Yeah, grateful you know and and uh, at peace kind of with where you are at the moment that's mm -hmm. the ideal and then if, if you the more you can get into that state the more you'll be uh in a good place wherever you know, you where, yeah right yeah. yeah i was meditating today and i was all worried and anxious about whatever the hell i'm worried and anxious about every day and I moved I moved up here on like I think November 1st when November 6th the day I moved up here 
I came down with a cold that I had for three weeks moving in here, like the U-Haul, like something's wrong with the tire and the U-Haul ended up getting delivered on a, on a flatbed truck the last 10 miles, total headache. Couldn't get the internet set up. Couldn't get like the power set up. Everything was just a, it was just a total disaster. Putting together this studio took far longer than it should have. And it was just thing after thing and waiting on stuff to be shipped and finding the right box to unpack. And it was, I have clinical OCD, so I was just going crazy and I just couldn't wait for it to all be, for every picture to be hung up, for every pillow to be right. And I've been fully unpacked for a couple of weeks now. And I've got all my like physicians transferred, prescriptions transferred, internet, bills, changed banks. I've, I've checked off every box. And I was just thinking about that today. Like I so badly wanted all those things accomplished. And they've only been accomplished for a couple of weeks and I've already forgotten about them. And I'm on to the next concern. And I just stopped and was like, even just having my bed assembled on like the, the bed stand, like that was just, I just kept putting that off for a couple of weeks. And I was just sitting there on my bed and it's fully assembled. Everything, all the clothes are put away. There's no bags. All the boxes are flattened and took to recycling. And I was just like, I was just dying for this all to be accomplished. It took two days of driving to move up here. And it's all done. Everything's done. Podcast is back to streamlining. I'm already meeting new guests. You're one of them. It looks good. It looks pretty similar to the, the setup I'm familiar with. Though. Uh, thank you. But <laughs> it was just... I wanted all of that done so badly and then it got done and now I'm not even, and so I really had to just sit there and look around and be like, just breathe this in for like a minute. Like it's all done. You're moved in. Like just enjoy that for a second. And for a brief moment, I did actually kind of feel peace. Hey, I think, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the key is I don't think you're ever going to find the geographic spot where there's happiness, uh, maybe more happy than less, but I think it is a lesson in finding peace inside and then you'll be cool with wherever you are. I don't know. Or I've just totally detached from reality. I'm not sure. No, no, that's yeah. I, I, I think that's true. You'll, if you're always identifying with, with a place or with anything really outside yourself, that's, that's the whole no problem really mm -hmm. the, the, uh, that's what you try to let go of and in meditation and kind of all this stuff that normally is floating through your consciousness that you identify with uh or get attached to or kind of think is you and then you see it as you're meditating you see that it's it's actually not it's, it's just the stuff it's stuff floating by and so well what is this part of you that is aware of the stuff that's floating by and then that one level that's oh that's the part of me that's generating this language that's saying you know the part of me that's aware of the stuff floating by and then you gotta, gotta let go of yeah, that layer but it's, it's, yeah but at some point you start sort of just like oh floating and there's yeah. nothing and and it's you know so that that's when you're starting to get somewhere 
when with a Sufi meditation, sometimes it's interesting how that happens, like right at the the correct number of repetitions of whatever formula you're chanting. Oh, really? And it was, that was really strange. Like, you know, okay, so chant like, you know, a hundred la ilaha illallahs and then, a you know, 500 of this and 200 of that or whatever. So you do, you, you know, you, that's how, you know, the Sufi people will recommend, you know, do this or that form of chanting. And I've noticed that as you do that, it's the transitions in the chants and also like when you get to that hundred beads on your rosary or whatever that that's when like whoa it's like going off a cliff and now you're just floating yeah. you let go it's the same kind of thing as when you're meditating and it actually kicks in and you actually are no longer um identifying with the contents of your consciousness no it's <clears throat> i mean i've only a handful of times probably five times i've done psychedelics and psychedelics don't they don't hold a candle to really deep meditations. And I've, I've been meditating since 2008 or so, and I've only had so many good ones, but quote unquote good ones. But no, when you get there, when you get to that spot, yeah, like you are no longer in a room. You are no longer in a organism with two arms and two legs. Yeah. You're, and you're no longer the thought and you're no longer the brain generating the thought and you're not the witness and you're not the witness of the witness and then the language stops and then you're just self-reflection on reflection and then you're thinking about consciousness and then you just are conscious and it kind of opens up to where there is no definitive shape i guess most easily you'd say you're like a sphere because everything feels equidistant but even that's there is no time and space and then from nowhere, it just generates like extreme joy, not even happiness, just there's just joy and peace, like true peace. You're not yearning for anything. And it's, it's so terrible when it ends and it goes away and you're like, no, come back, come back. And then you're back down in this reality. Yeah, that's what Rumi, the poet, complains about, and landing back in the tavern of ruin. Oh. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's the worst. And it's, but then I have to imagine it's for a reason, and one day I'll look back and it'll make sense. Maybe that's the real key to all of this. It's just well, my... the Quran seems to tell us it's a test, hmm. that it's, you know, life is, is basically, it's a kind of a, a test in in which the kind of resistance that we face mostly from within ourselves is uh overcome or you know, to what extent can we do the right thing at every level you know in in this life and i guess in some other traditions that agree with that they say that it's actually you know some somebody's like in in islam it's it's just like that's how it is right but in in i've seen these these kinds of other uh spiritual traditions where the, they they say yeah, you know, the universe is huge and there's just all sorts of places that consciousness can go. And like we're really lucky to be on Earth incorporated into these, you know, human bodies and, and having the human consciousness and human sensorium, because it, we have that opportunity to actually uh you know do something super you know wonderful with that. So that the kind of test that we're undergoing is actually sort of productive that we we really can uh can can get in, in islamic terms get closer to god 
uh, and experience the you know, nearness to God or korba, uh, and these you know these these other you know spiritual people that have supposedly you know sort of seen the, the larger cosmic picture, like they say, you know, when you're not in the human body. Uh, you know, consciousness just, you know, when it's not, when it's disembodied, it's free. It doesn't have all these limitations and the suffering, but the limitations and the suffering and the testing that we undergo in, the, in this human existence actually really gets us somewhere and ends up, you know, being really good. It's like rich soil to grow in. And the, you know, the, the consciousness that's not in that situation, most other kind, you know, and everything, you know, some say that everything's consciousness or, you know, the universe is conscious. There's this, you know, uh, uh, panpsychism idea that expresses that. And so consciousness that's not in the human body could be, you know, everything's a little bit conscious, you know, in this, in this dimension and all lots of other dimensions as well. And most of them are really not the kind of nearly as rich soil to grow in as this human existence is. So I, I think there's something to that. The, you know what I'm what I've heard from different sources lines up with the Quranic picture of life as a as a test that you know can lead to the garden or to hellfire depending on how we do with it. And of course, that we can take that as symbolic if we want. That maybe the the beauty of paradise and the the horror of hellfire is like beyond any human language. So these the these intense images are given to us you know to get just a, a taste of of what's at stake but that uh anyway that's that's kind of how i've come to see it <laughs> and so it makes me grateful to be in you know having been given this opportunity to do this test i like you you and i talked about that the first time you're on here was is it all a test and i hadn't thought about it like that it's like be grateful to be in the test, right? The that's part of what you're being tested at. <laughs> yeah, it's like you don't. You can say like, "Oh, I'm happier if I don't go to the gym." Sure, but there's a value to the gym. You go through the discomfort and you leave feeling better, and you grow over days and weeks and years. You can see the growth, and sure, it's painful and there are ups and downs, but you get to evolve. Maybe, maybe that's it. Like, be grateful you're here, that you can progress, you can evolve, you can sort of, you know, like, like pimp my ride, but you can sort of like pimp your consciousness. You can become better. You can do the right thing in the face of adversity. You can, you know, ablate away your own ego. You can admit wrong. You can be embarrassed. Yeah. And purify your heart. Yes. Yeah. It's very nice section in this book by Ticone on the everyday saints uh, that the whole capsule summary of all of theology is just purify your heart before God. Mm. So it's a very simple, like a peasant or something who, who says that. And, and the, uh, the learned theologians among the Orthodox monks are, are kind of blown away by it. Yeah. Ram Dass, deep in your, deep in your love and deep in your emptiness. Or love everyone always. I think that's what it, and I think you're correct about the idea of heaven and hellfire, probably beyond description. But what these are are symbols, just like the the flatlander can't, the two dimensional figure can't understand a three dimensional thing. 
it only comes through its reality in odd slices. That's probably what heaven and hellfire are to us. So we perceive them as fire and burns and burns are painful or heaven and, you know, clouds. And you see all your loved ones who have been deceased. Like that's probably the best we can do to describe it. It's probably beyond our comprehension. The Islamic version of paradise is kind of interesting in that it's it's a beautiful garden with all kinds of growing things and fruits and presumably flowers and then good company, including you know beautiful people. And then hellfire, of course, is is you know scorching heat. And you can see how in a desert environment where the really nice places are the oases, oasis. yeah, right, yeah. That, that that would make sense. And still, that actually, that image works a lot better for me than the angels sitting on clouds playing harps, which Mark Twain thought was so ridiculous. Uh, that, that one never really worked that well for me. I and mean, once in a while, you, know, you look at the plane window and you see the clouds and yeah, wow, far out. That's cool. Yeah. But still, the, the Islamic paradise kind of resonates better with me than, yeah. than that one. Yeah, no, I'd be I'd be better with an idea of heaven being like a like a cabin up in the mountains, not on board. The, I think it was Bill Hicks that said it. He's like, you get up to heaven and Hendrix is on the harp. He's and everybody's smoking cigarettes. You don't have any nosy people saying, I can't believe you smoke. He goes, St. Peter sitting there smoking. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, do you guys smoke up here? And he goes, yeah, all the non-smokers are in hell. <laughs> he goes, yeah. what do you think all these clouds are? Come on in. Hendrix is on harp tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, yeah. Yeah, that's, he's kind of channeling Mark Twain with that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bill, Bill Hicks was great. But, yeah, I think that, I like that, though, what you said. Not, not the garden, but, and good company. Mm. It seems like that's what we're both yearning for. I can speak for myself. It seems like that's what my own heart is telling me. Like, I don't necessarily care about the mountains and the trees like whatever i think it's being part of a, a a community maybe that's who knows maybe that's what maybe i'm perceiving like the outer edges of what i think heaven is and i'm geographically moving closer and closer i don't know now, that's something we might have to think about and come back to. <laughs> sure, sure. I was going to say I didn't realize we've we've gone for an hour. I, I I have the flu. I feel terrible, but this this went by quickly. Yeah, so, you're uh, hanging in there pretty well, though. Yeah. yeah um. That's well, no. Nah, thank you. You it, much like meditation, the time went by and I didn't even realize it. So, started very dark and bleak, but I think we ended in a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah. that's that's a good trajectory <laughs> to be on. Let's absolutely let's hope it continues. start with LBJ. Twenty twenty three, right? Yeah, yeah. Start with LBJ. <laughs> And yeah. with paradise. That's, there you go. That, that's a good projection. <laughs> well, all right. Dr. Barrett, thank you so much, sir. I will put the links to your websites in the description and uh, hope to chat with you again sometime, man. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. And all looking right. forward bless. to the next one. Okay. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.